Welcome. I'm your host, Stephen. And I'm Nekka. And you're listening to Rich Friday's podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking to Joe Rocky of Rocky Real Capital. Now, check this out. Joe used a vast array of real estate methods, which helped his company generate consistent revenue and profit during unfavorable market conditions, as you know, in the real estate market. So I want you to stay tuned. Take a listen to what our conversation was about. Our dialogue. It was pretty good. It was really good. Really good. We'll see you in a moment. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We're going to start with Mr. Joe Rocky. He is the CEO of Rocky Roll Capital. We want to know what made you start that. Yeah. So I started in 2011. Um, and this was basically after doing uh, the first career that I chose was as a financial real estate advisor or correction, as just a financial advisor, period. We didn't do real estate. It was mostly selling life insurance and annuities. And what ultimately got me into there was the skill sets I chose to learn when I went to college, because I wanted to make sure that, that I had skills, whether it be working in this particular industry or that everyone needs to know where their money is. Well, that's basically what accounting is. Um, everyone needs to know how to get more money. And there's really two ways you can do that. The one is the finance way, go get a loan from someone. Uh, or you can sell stuff, which is the best long-term solution. Um, so when I was going through college, I basically had every job I had was commission-based sales. And coming out uh, during the recession, the prior recession, um, you know, it was very slim pickings. There were some guys who knew that they wanted to be auditors and sit in a cubicle for the rest of their lives. Um, they, they, they signed up with, you know, the major accounting firms right away. And I, I knew that that wasn't me. I, I got offered some stuff that I turned down thinking that, oh, life will never get bad. I'll always be able to think of something. Um, fast forward, um, you know, I'm panicking as this recession is really kind of setting in here. And I ended up taking a commission-based job as being, as a, like I said, selling life insurance, selling annuities. Uh, it basically ended up being really poorly run. I ended up doing essentially only cold calling, running around 80 hours a week. It was uh, a lot of things I didn't like. And toward the end of it, I just happened to be cold calling an attorney who didn't want to buy anything I was selling, but she did have a group that she was in front of tomorrow and her main speaker had just fallen out for whatever reason. So I went and just did some generic thing about financing and how, you know, you need to leverage your money and nothing really complicated. It wasn't really heavy lifting from what I remember, but selling to those people who are in that room were like the easiest sales of my life. So then it became, well, let's find groups like that and realize how we connect it. And this was all with the mindset of, I'm just going to keep selling life insurance and annuities. But then I ended up in sitting in the back of an acre meeting, which is the real estate group of, of Pittsburgh here. And I'm looking around, these guys aren't working nearly as hard as me. They're all making vastly more money than me. So why don't we look into this? Like, this seems like a good idea. And really within two months, I was hundred percent out of the selling life insurance game. And I went hundred percent all in. Um, I bought that first property that we began flipping in May. And the second one, I think I bought in like July. Either way, I hadn't been done with the first flip when I bought the, the second one, which in reality is really probably the best thing that ever happened to me because here in Allegheny County, 97% of the people who do their first flip never do a second one. And I probably would have been in that group. You know, it, it's not easy. It, it's really not easy. And it's something that the TV makes seem really easy. You know, you just go and you throw some paint on the walls and all that. But that's not reality. 
So the first one, I did virtually everything you could do wrong with in terms of running the relationships of my partners, of, of the crew, um, even some just basic fundamental selections of what I wanted to do to the house I did wrong. Um, the second one, we cleaned a lot of it up. I, I had realized I don't want this contractor again. I'm going to pick someone different. Um, some partner adjustments and how we interacted with each other vastly improved. And the second one got much better. And then next thing I know, down the road, we're creating more and more entities. And eventually, Rocky Road Capital got created to be the holding company of all of these various um, properties that we we're doing. Uh, because just the way lawyers are, they say you should essentially have one for every flip you do just as a protection thing. Um, it, it, to me, I don't get boggled down with the legal parts of it. I get boiled down to what are we actually selling and how are we going to make it better? And that's really how we started was I didn't want to work 80 hours a week. I wanted to inevitably create something that was going to pay for me when I was older uh, from based upon the work I'm doing now. And that's really what we've gotten to. So from starting from just the big one-off flips to now getting to where we're just basically doing it the way that I want it to be as I'm feeling it in the moment almost um, is kind of where we're at now. Um, and, but it, it's mostly set up as, as we have a lot of tenants, they all have a stake in their own personal property. You know, it, the goal is for them to eventually have it to be theirs and, and me to be out of the picture completely. So we train people how to do that. Um, kind of treat them like adults rather than the way most landlords treat their tenants is treat them like tenant, like, you know, high school kids that will eventually break everything. Uh, we don't do that. So <laughs> it, it, it's a very different client I look for. It's a very different system. And it's certainly not the majority. I don't want to try to say that. But the niche that I, I hunted down and then figured out how to obtain was exactly what we were trying to do. It took four years to figure out how to do that. But now that we're there, we're very glad that this is the process that we're in and certainly made COVID much better than most landlords throughout the process. That that That's a plus. That's a lot of golden nuggets, Joe. Because mm -hmm. I, I think about this. Um, I'm a finance guy. So I'm looking 2008. You had a recession. You mm -hmm. start 2011 <laughs> into a market that just dealt with the recession. Uh, but you had yep. these these skill sets you said in college mm -hmm. that helped you to, first of all, recognize opportunities, but then seize those opportunities. So tell us and our listeners, how did you properly scale your business? Because you said your first flip was like you did everything wrong. So there was mm -hmm. failure, but you learned from that. And then from there, multiple times, all these years of these phases you went through, you got to this point where you wanted your business to be. Yeah, so the best way to probably show that is through the picture of how I did the financing of it, and then we'll kind of get into the, the, the how the sales were. So when I when I was selling the life insurance, I was good at it. My first mm -hmm. year, I was rookie of the year. Second year, I was underclassman. Third year, I left. So um, I, I had some savings built up as a result of that. And what we did is, or what I did, it wasn't even a we at that point. Um, what I did was I ended up finding a guy who was – just literally a hard money lender. He, he mm. specialized in working with, he knew he was going to have the backing of the asset of the mortgage of the property I was flipping. That was the primary backing. Um, so in some regards, the fact that my credit in a business realm was non-existent was kind of irrelevant. What he cared was the property, where it was and what it was going to be. And rather than giving me the full loan up front, We'd go through periodically. He would see the progress that was done saying, okay, 
in my opinion, you have now increased the value by X per our agreement. You get 75% of X right now. Boom. So I had the whole time had to be able to come up with not just that 25% spread, but I also had to be able to come up with enough that would be able to get us to the next time we have an evaluation. So we had to have a lot of savings built up to do that. And they all went into the first flip. I mean, there's just no way around it. I, I went all in and probably didn't have enough. Well, let's also be clear. I, it would have been certainly nice to have more money than I really did. But as we went through that first flip, um, I said that it, it wasn't the first flip was not profitable, but I was able to, to learn from what not to do. So the way that we leveraged it was really going, what was the failure? And so I'm simultaneously dealing with this emotional backing of, I just left something I was successful at. I was good at it, but I not necessarily physically with the people I was working with, but I had mentally said, I am never going back there. And in my head, I had burnt all the bridges that I will never go back and and go into that building again um, to do that. You knew this had to work. Yeah. Yeah. No other option. Give yourself yeah. no other option. Exactly. It, it's it's almost um yeah, that, that's exactly it. It, it. Like at least like he writes in the art of war, put your armory with a river behind him. You can't right. retreat. <laughs> um and that's that's essentially what I did in my head. So I, I jumped in with the second one um because there were some things I did wrong with the first one. And th- this is common for basically anyone that does a flip. You know, in your mind, you look at the numbers beforehand. And so you're looking at what is my profit margin going to be if the property sells for X. So it already is starting with an assumption of if the property sells for X. So um, at that point in time, the recession had ended in the sense that banks were now willing to lend to people who had jobs. They were not willing to lend to landlords. Um, They still Mm -hmm. considered us subprime and that stigma hadn't gone away yet, but they were willing to lend to people who were going to get a mortgage and be the actual owner of the property living there. So we were strictly targeting areas that were in that type of price range. Um, so we were looking for houses that were going to be between 125 and 150, knowing that at least in Pittsburgh, there's a lot of buyers in that market. So as people were kind of lifting their head up from the recession, that this would be an opportunity. I'll have a higher quality than everything around me. So it'll work out. So that's the theory when we start this. And then we get into the reality that I really didn't know how to run the crews. I didn't know how to evaluate them. And I was kind of taking his word, him being the the contractor's word, more so than what experience would tell me now. Like it, it would be a completely different operation now. So as a result, I let him slide with way too many things that I never should have. And mm-hmm. it kind of became a slope. Once you allowed the first thing to happen, then the second thing, then the third, then then you wake up and a property that was going to be on the market ready to go in June is barely touching the market at the end of September. Well, you just missed the buying season. So now your what if it sells for X is slashed because you missed the you missed the selling season. So what are we going to do? We're going to sit on this for another year, knowing that my cost of this loan that I have on here is through the roof. So every yeah. every day you're literally losing more profit. And it was learning that that system, having gone through it, was really how the the thought ideal of everything will work out in reality is really how we started systematizing things, 
so we could learn this is what not to do. And yes, I actually had read books that told me not to do all that and still made all the mistakes. There's just some things about living there and having those feelings inside of you, of like knowing that this is not the way it should be, but I'm already X amount of money tied into this. Like I'm tied into this crew. If I try to get yeah. someone new, it's yeah. not really an, I'm just being a bigger hole. So mm-hmm. learning those, those let it slide A and B, how to deal with that myself was a big part of what I wasn't ready for in the beginning. And that's really that learning is kind of what really made the thing work better. Cause after we got the thing set, right? Like the next four out of the five were, were pretty significant wins and things just worked out. So it sounded like you brought in some partners after the first flip, because this one, you kind of like, I'm putting my toe in the water. I can splash a little bit. Okay. Let me just jump in. But yeah. then you realize it's deeper than I think. <laughs> it, it was deeper than I thought it was. And it, it also was the recognition that, like, if you think of the, the typical sales cycle, um, mm-hmm. I am not good at all of it. And, and that's just a, just a fact of life. I, and the part that I'm particularly least happy with um, and least good at is the prospecting side of the world. I, I, I just not something I do. And where it showed up the most was really in hiring. I mean, because if, if you look at it from prospecting, cold calling to go get in front of someone to sell sell life insurance, um, that's not really all that much different than prospecting, having enough contractors come through so you can find the right one. Mm-hmm. And it was really learning what to look for and what what to judge people on. What, what were the things that were going to matter for our relationship going forward? And part of that is learning yourself as the person who's going to be in charge and calling the decisions. Um but it really was that it was just, you know, what are we dealing with and how do we do? So that's where the partners came in was you guys want to sit around and, and, and judge everyone and, and make sure that my calendar's full. I'll do all the in-person stuff. Like I actually like the in-person stuff. I don't like what takes us to get there. So once we kind of figured out like, okay, we're going to get these people here involved. We're going to get that. It works out really well. And, you know, as we fast forward, I mean, this was a decade ago. Now I have a bunch of different companies that are just strictly based upon which lead partner I have doing it. Uh, um, you know, some of them are, are, are lending partners. Some of them are, are just we get leads and sell them to other investors now. But that's what it is. So I like being in front of people and making things happen, whether that be getting the crew to get the job done. But that's really not even the most profitable part. And that was the other part that I, that I learned that being with the crew normally is setting us back because they're not working. They're normally talking to me the way they all are. Mm -hmm. So what makes us the most money is me finding a better house that even if we do everything wrong, I bought it for so little, it's going to work. And that was the big shift that happened probably about three or four years in or so um, where the prospecting all became about spend almost 80, 90% of my time on acquisitions and only on acquisitions, even though literally I'm spending money to get this house, you get the right one. You basically can't lose. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was the difference was, was finding people that want to do that. And over the years, I've had some really great partners. Some of them I've never been in the same room with. That's the crazy part um, that really happened that wouldn't have been able to happen. You know, had I started 10 years mm-hmm. earlier, you know, I got guys who are in Florida that I met him once because he was on his way to Buffalo. Um, he came through Pittsburgh. We had a lunch together. 
we've been doing deals together for eight years. So um, it's crazy that, that the internet can let you do that now. And it's really given us the ability to multiply, you know, I'm in 20 before COVID I was in 20 new houses a week trying to get you to sell me your house. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're going through that many and you only need a couple of them, you can really be selective. You can be aggressive and the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. And there's a, um, an entire market of people out there that want to be landlords, but don't have the time to do the 80%, you know, 80% of their time. Cause they're in court, they're doing surgery, you know, they're doing yeah. whatever they are. So <laughs> I then basically sell houses to them. I mean, none of them are market ready now. You know, like essentially we're the fixers. Um, You know, we're going through, we're buying in that house that no mortgage company would ever give you a mortgage because it is broken. But I sell it to a a landlord or a guy who wants to flip it. And, you know, now all of a sudden that neighborhood's better off for it. You don't have the house that looks like it might fall on the kids playing on the street. You know, so everyone's better off for it. And um, yeah, to me, that also was part of the the reward of realizing, you know, we're actually making a difference here. This is more than just money in the pocket. This is actually helping everyone involved. And even people who aren't involved, just people who live next to what I do are better off for it. And they're, you know, they never give anything for in terms of uh, X's and O's. So you found, he found a niche and he also, he stabbed his weaknesses Mm -hmm. or those areas where you say, you know what? I need to do it, but I don't necessarily like to do it. Let me bring in the people who can. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah, because I read this book. I, it was by a psychologist that was looking at sales and basically said every single thing can fall in like one of four categories. Either it's important, but not urgent. It's not mm-hmm. important. It's not urgent. It's urgent, not important. And then whichever the fourth one I haven't said yet was because I mix them up sometimes. But the point being is I was spending so much of my life in stuff that was urgent and maybe it was important or maybe it was not, but it was, it's felt urgent at the time. And it's very easy as just people to get sucked in that trap. I yeah. mean, that is essentially what your phone is designed to do. Um, is to get you trapped into you think something's urgent because your phone made a noise and we're trained to do that. Um, so we all have that in us from the get-go. Like th- that, that's not a unique to any one of us individually. But recognizing that, you know, I'm not really this is not something that's making us money. You know, if I come over there every time you have a question about do we want to put this cabinet 17 feet above the countertop or or 17 inches above the countertop, 18 or whatever. That doesn't matter. So eventually we just got to a point where, you know, we just knew each other and he knew I wasn't going to yell at him if it was a little bit different than the kitchen he did before. As long Mm -hmm. as it was level, I didn't care. Like once we got to those types of things and I was like, at the end of the day, we'll we'll advertise to someone who's five, six and the other house will advertise to someone who's six, one. It'll work out. Like, don't worry about it. Like, (laughs) let's just get things done. Yeah. 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 So, and what, like I said, what I realized was the, our profit maker that's what I spent all my time in. And then by default of spending excess time there, I had to take away from other things. And it was an evaluation of, uh, in retrospect, it was an evaluation of what should we take time away from? Because in the beginning it was just like, well, I'm just not going to do that or that. It was kind of shotgun approach. Now, yeah. thankfully I, I, w- I was able to at least recognize that, um, what was probably less important, you know, be able to go through it. Cause I had enough experience of doing enough, projects of saying you know i really don't need to be there 
for this stage or that stage, but I can be there, but I need to be there for this. So once we started teasing those out, then I looked, then they didn't get done for a month because I just didn't do them. So then I looked at it and goes, all right, so because we didn't do these activities for the last month, what actually has affected our business? Like where is there actually noticeable change? And if it was negative change, we then got someone to go start doing that task again. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, and it's kind of embarrassing in retrospect, um, a lot of the things we tied out didn't really affect the business. Like no one knew they weren't happening and no one cared. So wow. why was I wasting my time on that? So no, that's what it was. Uh, well, like I said, there was a lot of uh, uh, checking out the crews, seeing what the um, what what they wanted in terms of really nitpicky things that are very technical, um, but didn't really matter. You know, if your hardwood floor is on an angle and you have it at a 60 degree angle versus 45 degree angle, the end buyer is never going to know the difference um, in terms of the way to actually physically lay the floor. It's almost by house specific anyways. So mm-hmm. it was kind of giving them freedom rather than having them always asking for permission. Right. And, and that I think is, is the best way to say that. Cause I think that's applicable to a, a lot of people's lives is I just essentially let the, the middle management, which is really what the head contractor is, have more freedoms and, and have more reins. So I didn't have to be tied into that. Um, that was a big one. Uh, and then just from logistical standpoints of not looking at properties that were so far out that I probably wouldn't take them anyway, because I had a formula, the further away you were, I would still buy it, but it had to be a way bigger deal. So I just started cutting those out because I wasn't really getting those properties anyway. So why don't we deal with stuff that's going to be essentially the same profit margin, but more likely to happen. So it just became kind of fine tuning, um, stuff like that within our own funnel. Um, and then also we were obviously still doing funding, but you know, I, it was the first time I think it was like 15 or 18% interest rate, which is crazy high. And I was like, I'll just keep, I'll I'll keep hunting around. I'll find someone who, who will be better, who'll be better. And eventually I was just like, you know what now, you know, what we're going to do is we're just going to keep working with, with, with him, which we do. We still work with him. Um, but we built enough rapport where it was like, you know what, man? we don't need to pay points anymore. You know, I'm not going to foreclose on this. And it was better once I made the decision to just build this relationship better than keep hunting for the next best thing. And that to me ended up, Hey, it saved a ton of time. I'm not constantly going out essentially on first dates with finance guys, um, which was a waste (laughs) of time. I was actually, you know, staying and building a relationship with this guy where he wanted to do this. And now I can use that time to be going out, and finding more properties, finding more properties. And that's where the surplus of properties happen. That's when we started being able to sell these non, you know, mortgageable properties to other people and essentially created a, a completely second wing of revenue that we never would have gotten to had I only, had we not stopped cutting out this other fat that really was not necessary. It took me mm-hmm. a, some failures to learn it, but that was that that was the part of what what really grew and you, know, you get a completely extra revenue stream here that's only based on sales it it really worked out how did you how did you go about structure wise with your partners like do did you recycle partner were you using the same partners that you had yep. from day 1 or you kind kind of had to like 
replace them. And when you're doing that, in terms of operation, how do you maintain the same operation so that you're going to get the results for what you understood? Like, were you training your partners? Were they coming in with their own expertise? Most, for the most part, no. Uh, most of them had really no idea what, what real estate was, but they had the the golden vision of based upon what the TV told them it could be. So some mm. of them wanted flips. Some of them wanted the long-term revenue. Some of them just wanted a quick one and done, which is ultimately what this wholesaling became was, you know, I go in a house, I get someone to buy it. Um, it's out of our lives basically within three months. You know, we, we never really hold it. Um, half the time it ends up coming to my name. Half the time it never even gets to my name but we sell the contract um, from how to the other person. So really what, it, what the partnership version became was kind of talking to a lot of people that really had no idea what they wanted to do per se and kind of seeing what were they already good at. And what I was looking for in a partner was someone who wanted to do the stuff that I didn't want to do. Um, it really, at the end of the day, that was it. So all of my partners now basically do the same thing but in different ways they fill my calendar um and then it's for whatever purpose they want to to go and get the revenue for so some of them just wanted to be straight landlords and they, and they want the long-term checks some of them want to to have just the pile of money and for me i really don't care because i know how to make money and make it worthwhile on both sides so that's what we really do is, is we just get people that want to do that side now i have trained people and taught them how to do flips and, and they have spun out and you know some of them now are just my clients i sell broken properties to them to go fix and flip um because i personally do not do flips anymore uh, i i found that um that in 17 or so uh the partners i had that wanted to do the flips were kind of basically saying you know this was fun but i made them enough money i wanted to i want to go off and basically use the resource I'm putting into your business and retire, which I was like, okay, you know, that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. And the partners that I had left, I, I essentially had a bunch of re re meetings with them. And that's when I pitched them and, and ultimately had fulfilled the legal requirements of being able to do the long-term rental properties we do now where the tenants are going to buy the house from me. So it, it, in terms of the revenue approach, it's almost a hybrid where we're still getting that nice little monthly payout. But one day these tenants are going to have their credit scores high enough and we're going to get, you know, 10 years worth of rent in one day. When's it going to happen? We'll find out. But it's going to happen just based upon the numbers of what I bought this house for and what they're going to buy it off of us for. And then not to mention all the in-between time, um, I don't have to deal with any of the tenants crap, which is... Something I didn't have to learn from, thankfully, being with Acre, talking to enough other landlords, um, it's basically a lot. Um, it, it could be a lot, especially when you treat them like they're all high school kids that are going to break anything. Eventually, your tenants are going to act like high school kids and break everything. So um, we bypassed all that. Uh, basically, every single one of my tenants falls into one of two categories. Either A, they had no idea how credit worked when they were younger and their credit score got destroyed. Or B, their divorce attorney told them to destroy their credit out of spite. Um, either way, mm. they now have good jobs and like they want to get their life together. They don't want me micromanaging them. So, you know, you guys shovel the snow, you guys cut the grass. That's a responsibility. You know, at the end of the day, when you ultimately own this house, you're not going to call up your mortgage company and complain about how the faucet's leaky. You're going to have to figure it out. And right. that's what this is now. 
So as a result, all of those problems that people have to go and get called into their tenants and all those nightmare stories landlords had, I cut them all out of my life. So you, you shifted your business model yep. from a flip model to honestly, it's almost like a NACA program to me where yeah. he, purchased, no, he purchases a home and he put tenants in there. So he's creating consistent cash flows. But then now I'm helping them build up to mature enough and not saying that based on intellect, but based yeah. on credit worthiness and things of that nature so that they can purchase this home. And I still walk away with a big check. Yeah, exactly. And throughout the process, we found this company that collected the, cause I don't, uh, the goal was, and this is what I tell people um, after we sign these forms to put you guys in, cause you, you do still sign a traditional lease and you also sign mm-hmm. the option to buy. So the, there is two distinct things. That's more of a lawyer thing than a business setup thing. But I tell them all at the end of the day, we're going to see each other again under one of two extremes. Either A, you're buying this house for me and it's yours forever, or B, you're getting evicted. And and that's the only time you're seeing me again, whether that be three years from now or whenever, that's the way it's going to be. So going through that, I then had to figure out a a system of getting paid where I didn't have to, you know, basically have interactions because that was the goal. That's, That's the true way to scale it is yeah. I'm getting paid without having to be involved. And that's uh, we found a company that not only will collect it, but it reports to either TransUnion or Experian. I forget which one. Either way, their credit score is getting better every time they pay their rent on time, the same as it would be if you paid a credit card on time. So wow. normally when you pay your rent, no one knows about it, but it's a big chunk of your money, but you're not getting credit mm-hmm. for it in the credit score world. We fix what that problem. What program are you using? It was called Koozie at the time. It has since been bought by Apartments.com, which is um, great. So Jeff Goldblum's little picture in every email, you know, yeah. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum-y face. Um, but yeah, so th- th- that that's what, what we use now is we use Apartments. Um, I don't got to do anything. The, the, they they put the money directly into my account. Um, I personally enjoy the fact that the way apartments does their fee structure is they actually charge the tenant not me so i set what the rent is they collect whatever from the tenant and keep a spread so um I've, it's no idea it doesn't really matter to me what it is quite frankly it's built into the lease whatever they charge is part of the lease technically um so i'm assuming that they're regulated and all that but uh, i it wasn't something that was a problem so i never looked into it and that's the other part that that really going back to those boxes before of important and not urgent. Mm -hmm. That's where I spent a lot of time was how to legally make this correct. Because Mm -hmm. what a lot of people do is they do these rent to owns and it doesn't quite work out well. Something goes sideways and then lawyers will rip it apart because you didn't do it right. Um, And there's a lot of roles both on the Pennsylvania level and then also on the congressional level that are applicable to this type of transaction. And, um, you know, it didn't come out rosy the first time I did it. We, we lost in court. Uh, thankfully, we lost relatively quickly. So we didn't make a lot of these out there before we did. But we spent probably about three years just brainstorming with um, with various different attorneys about how we could do this and how, how we can make it work. And, um, you know, we're one of really only three companies in, in the Pittsburgh area that do this on any type of significant volume. Uh, there's a lot of things that I love about it. There's a lot of things that that are great for everyone involved. And that's kind of what we went for it was how to make something that was something everyone would win from it. 
Because when you look at the landlord model, the way you lose is your tenants take up too much of your time, your tenants destroy the house, and you don't have enough of a security deposit to make up for it. The way you mm. lose in a flip is you didn't do it good, and then you end up spending more than you ultimately get for it. And there's a gajillion ways that can happen. But we looked at that at those kind of both streams. The, the upside of the flip is the big check. The upside of the revenue is essentially continual income. You, you know what you're going to get. And how could we merge those two but also eliminate all them headaches? And, and that's really what, what led me to spending three years. And for the record, those three years we spent essentially doing legal R&D. I didn't get paid for any of that. I never knew that this was yeah. going to have a happy ending. Um, in fact, everywhere we looked, it was like, not, nah, not going to work. Come up with a different game plan. Come up with a different game plan. Mm -hmm. And it, it felt like I was just wasting time and money. And had it not worked out, I would have. I mean, because there was a point where we had so much in legal fees and just throwing darts on the wall and developing strategies. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hurdles out there when you start dealing with the Congress and, and, and their ideas that they put upon us. So getting over them really became a lot of it. And then also making it in such a way where it would fit where the banks would accept it. Because all of these tenants here are getting a mortgage from someone else. So the banks have a lot of say in who they give the money to and why. Um and, and there's just a lot of nuance that there's no way I can go through five years worth of nuance what you hear. But long story short, the part I was trying to say was I didn't know it was going to work. I, uh, I didn't know any of it was going to work. But we went for it anyways with just the hope of if it does work, it's going to be better off and here's why. So that was the, the really big part of it was it's not important or it is very important that to do it, but it wasn't urgent. So had I not trimmed out all that stuff we talked about earlier, I never would have had the time to do it um, at all, let alone the, uh, the, the mental freedom to give myself some time to actually sit and reflect upon it. Um, so many people just stuck running from fire to fire. It, it, it really hurts your ability to grow yourself. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of the book he was talking is Stephen R. Covey. The four quadrants. Yes, that's that's, right. a, that's the book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up on Stephen Covey, uh, but think about this. Can you tell us? Did you two x? Did you five x? Did you ten x from changing your business model to the initial flip to the, having this hybrid mm -hmm. of uh, tenant consistent cash flow to flip? Yeah, well, I always wanted the I wanted rentals first. I mean, the, the okay. start off, that's what I wanted, but I knew I didn't have the capital to do it. So I basically uh, was using the flips as the way to get the money because when I, like I said, when I first came out, banks were still treating landlords as some prime and they didn't want to touch us. Mm -hmm. So I effectively had to have the pile of cash for what anything I was going to do as a rental, I had to buy basically as cash or pay a crazy interest rate, but that's not sustainable in a rental market. So it basically was get a pile of cash, go get a house, get a pile of cash, go get a house and then do the rental that way. Um, which after the fact, the banks kind of woke up and said it wasn't really landlords that ruined the world. Um, we're going to start giving these guys loans again. We were then able to really start making plans for leveraging things moving forward. And that's really kind of how the multipliers came into play because I built up this asset cash. That's what I built mm -hmm. up. And then I just converted it to real estate value. And since I already was 
despite not being as good then as I am now, I was buying houses that were under market value. When I bought it, I was getting real estate value and equity juice on top of it. So I was making it stronger, but I was going from incredibly liquid to basically 100% illiquid because no bank wanted to touch me at that point. Hmm. And knowing the history of banks and knowing what people are going through, that is a is happening. It's only going to get worse now. Um, COVID's to blame for that in, in a large respect. So at the end of the day, just <laughs> you're just climbing. He's a major. He knows Joe. Yeah, no, I mean I do. I mean the, the interest rates are almost irrelevant to the equation because the now this it's now a state by state example. So I don't know how it was for you guys in Georgia. But in Pennsylvania, they shut down, what, the March Madness of 19, I think is when they shut it. Maybe it was 20. Um, either way, it was March. Uh, I remember that because March Madness died, and that was, like, the thing I looked forward more than anything. That was, that, was, that was the day I decided I was officially out way back in the day in 2011 was, why am I working 80 hours a day as long as I get to watch March Madness? Like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> so, um, so I've always loved the first weekend of March Madness. Wait, real quick, what's your team, though, before you – um, I, I my, my true team's Duquesne. That's where I went, but they make the tournament like once every twenty years. So, um, they're due I, for it. Uh, they, they are due for it. <laughs> the portal will probably make that impossible, but th- that's digression. Uh, I, I really, I liked Buffalo. Um, and then he all that coach that that three pointer dunk system. He's now in Bama, and that is so fun to watch. Um, just you're shooting a three or you're, you're slamming the ball and there's no middle ground. Um, yeah, it's ironic. He, I didn't realize it was in Buffalo as he said that, Rob. I, um, I had the Big I had the Big 12 net, or the Big 10 network, rather. And when uh, Paterno's kid was at Michigan, for some reason, they were always on Wednesday night basketball. And I would always fall asleep watching that. And I, I, I like running teams, I guess, at the end of the day. I, I, like, I like the speed version of the game. Um, but the, yeah, just as a little digression there. So that tends to be where I'm at. But, um, yeah, I see where it fits into your business model. See how you, oh, you yeah. like the teams to see you want to see the big game, but you want to see those this intricate plays. Take. Even though they've fallen apart, not to get completely off basketball, I really think that's kind of what Izzone created up at Michigan State was get the ball in. So the guy who gets the ball to, to make your big basket has is already set up looking at looking at the three. And, and mm-hmm. really that that's kind of what I think that a a man and tie it back into business. That's what a manager's supposed to do. Set yourself up in a, in a position where all they need to do as your employees, they just need to do what they're here to do. And the rest of it will work itself out. Your job is to put them in the best position. So get it down low to your big man. Your big man feeds it out to the guy on the wing. He buries his three. There's no thinking. It's just catch and shoot. And if you, the more you can get your employees to that, the better. And that's really what I did with my partners was I was like, you do just this. We'll make money on the rest of it. And the, just this is obviously dependent upon each partner and what we're trying to accomplish. It, it still is aimed to them, but that's what it is. So, so yeah, sorry. I kind of sidetracked myself with, with the whole ism no, thing. Sorry, no, <laughs> but, you, threw yourself, you threw yourself in there. Yeah. Whether you have like a defined strategy or not. But yeah. you let, as time was going on, you just kept tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. What would you... What kind of uh, tips would you give another CEO, maybe in a, in a similar business, who's going in, you know, working with people is no exact science. However, what would you say post-pandemic, uh, you have one, one strategy, one way to do something, you need to switch it up. 
what would you say? How, how would you, what tips would you get? One little pushback on what he said is I did have a general game plan of what I wanted. I just had no, no idea how to get there. Um, so I, I knew I wanted the rentals. I, I knew I wanted the long-term revenue of that. Um, so I think it starts with that is, is you need to know where you want to get. You know, if you're Ford, you want to sell cars. Now, just how do we get there? Um, and, and to me, I think that that part needs to stay true. And I think that, that you also need to kind of recognize what is what are you good at? What is your foundation? Now, granted, it might need to get shifted a little bit. Um, and, and you might need to completely um, some things that used to work really great before are not going to work now. Um, so, um, you know, th- that's what I would say is, is you need to know where you're at. And you also need to be willing to recognize that you are going to have to create some changes here. And what you don't want to have is extra resistance based upon your people within. And you got to be willing to saying, you know what, you basically need to be on the board or you need to be out. And I get that that is incredibly scary, especially as we look at the labor markets right now and and saying that, you know, how am I ever going to replace this person? But the vast majority of people out there will tell you it is better to get rid of the detractor and not fill that seat than it is to keep the detractor here going over the fear of what it would be if they weren't here. So that would be the thing I would say is, and also don't be, don't be afraid to be wrong. Uh, I mean, that's going to happen to all of us. I mean, um, when I was all in, if I was wrong, I was out. So, I mean, putting yourself in that situation where it's got to be perfect or nothing is incredibly stressful. So, um, you know, allow yourself for leeway to be wrong. Um, but that being said, recognize that if you, the bigger you are wrong, the, the scarier it can be. I remember um, there were times, especially in the beginning when I was saying how I was doing that, finance of how I had to make sure I had extra money to get there and we really have enough yeah. starting money. I knew what Keller the uh the letter was from the gas company that was the 10 day shutoff versus the normal bill letter. Same with the power company. Like like I knew when it was like all right we pushed this too far. Um mm-hmm. and, and that was that was something. Now thankfully I don't got to deal with any of that anymore unless someone just doesn't open the mail but that's aggression um but we're not consciously using it as a strategy like that was consciously a strategy i had at the time like i'm not gonna be able to survive cash flow this week and pay the gas company so guess what we're gonna make sure these guys show up on monday the gas company ain't gonna shut me off for another 20 days we'll figure it out then and to a degree that is an uncomfortable mindset it really is but you but for me at least i had to learn really quickly how to overcome that and, and that's where some of these things that that we discussed earlier today came out was was how to, to get rid of that. And I, I remember like listening to podcasts and when there would be a pause in the person's voice, I'd have this gut fear because I thought it was my phone cutting off for a bill collector calling up. Um, I remember <laughs> you, know, you, you get professional wow. guys who know how to use a silence in their just normal cadence or just some people who talk slower yeah. and it would it would wrench me like, Oh no, I'd look up and, and see like what was going on. Like, like, am I getting a call here? Cause at that point, virtually no call was good. It, it, that part had, had changed um, as part of it, but that that's also part of life is, is we figured out how to get through that. And mm-hmm. I don't have that situation. Now, if I'm getting a call, it's from a telemarketer about who am I going to vote for? Um, but that's, <laughs> or, or you know, some robot trying to sell me another warranty, um, but that's basically it. Um, or it's a good thing. So, uh, I am one of those people who do pick up everything no matter what, but that's 
part of it. You know, I, I went through that fear of there actually being a problem to now it's just, you know, it, it, it's probably going to work out pretty well. So, so to answer your question about how to adjust in a post COVID world, uh, I would start with what is your true flag that you need to get to? Like, like do you need to get um, to the 40? Do you need to get to the 30? You know, where do you need to be or, or else? So know that first. Um, and then if there's people who are, are, are holding you back from getting there, get rid of them. Um, as cold as that sound, you'll be better off for it. Start by putting pressure on them, but make it clear that I don't care where you are in this company. I don't care if you're the 51% owner. Um, you know, you're out. If this, if you don't turn around and get on this buzz, right. I'm buying you out. Like, like, like we're, we're getting rid of you because this is too hard as it is in this world now. Um, and you know, for, for, for my side, um, in, in the real estate world, since that, that March madness shutoff began, you know, every state was told you weren't allowed to do evictions. That, that, that was one of the, the yeah. first, you weren't allowed to do evictions. You weren't allowed to do foreclosures. Um, and then each state gradually was able to turn on their, their eviction process. You're still not allowed to turn on foreclosures because that's congressional, but, um, the, the, all depend upon your state for, for allowing you to evict tenants. And in Pennsylvania, it was estimated that 40% of the people who knew they couldn't get evicted stopped paying that day. So hmm. if you live in an industry and 40% just stop. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so a, I mean, that, that's how I know hundred percent fact, the, uh, the, the recession's coming. It's actually going to be a really bad and lengthy one. Um, and it'll be at least in my opinion, it'll be at least three years or we'll have two waves of it depending upon how, how they look at it in retrospect. But the reason it's coming, and this is going to be a point <laughs> for everyone, um, isn't so much the interest rates. It's banks also now know that landlords had 40% less revenue. The bank can't foreclose on the house and get it back. So essentially they were down to, is this landlord going to be a cold guy and keep paying me or not? And you know, that, that was a personal business owner choice. What, what did they, they choose to do? That's why I just told you that story about how in the past, I understand how people had to jump around and try to keep themselves. So you know, basically prioritizing who you were going to pay. I, I get right. that. Um, at this point, I feel that keeping banks happy and the ability to get the leverage on my properties is more valuable than anything. Um, for a lot of reasons, but one of which is I have a lot of equity in my properties now. Like, like we figured out how to make these. Um, but the long story short is those tenants are going to get evicted depending upon your state. It'll just be a question of when. So in, in Pennsylvania, February 1st was the first day we were allowed to, to have an eviction hearing. Um, I had them, I had them that day. My lawyer was on top of it. Um, we, <laughs> you were we ready had, to go. Yeah. We, we had two hearings that day. I didn't get the first property back because my hearing was in the afternoon, um, until March. And that was just because the local sheriff got hit with essentially two years worth of evictions right. week. Um, because the magistrate can still evict everyone overnight. That ain't an issue. Um, you know, it, it's not really a hard case either. Have you paid? No. All right. Well, you're out. Anything you say in your defense is over at that point um, because of how many programs um, the various governments did to support you. You know, if you wanted to, you could have paid. And there's really no way around that fact. So to, to, to finish that point, I said real quick about why the recession is going to be awful. 
you're four, you, you own five units. I'm going to do this to make my math easy. You, if you own five units, 40% didn't pay. So two of them haven't paid you for the last two years. You don't have enough money to fix them up because they're going to be broken when you get them. You've never evicted someone and had a nice thing in return. It doesn't exist. So you don't have any money. You've been, st- you've been cash star forever. You only have one choice. It's going to be to liquidate the broken thing. So that means, well, I just got to get rid of it. And when you look at it from just basic supply and demand side, you're going to have a, a much more supply of broken things because you have three years worth of supply hitting at once. But the people who would have been buying these properties, these types of landlords, A, don't have the physical ability to because their cash is gone because of the tenants not paying. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of them that just mentally don't want to come back. Do I really want to have the chance of my governor telling me that I'm not essential? Do I really want to stay in this game? Like, like that's a big mental burden that, that is, it's harder on some people than others. So don't get me wrong, but I didn't deal with it. Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, the beginning of the first real year of COVID, um, being told that, that what I had just built for the last decade and it didn't matter because I wasn't essential. Uh, that, that was bad. So, yeah. so, so now, now we're on the other side of this, these properties are for sale. There's a ton of people, um, that have broken properties for sale. Very few people that want to buy them. And even fewer than that, that actually want to have the capital to do it. So that's going to start first wave of broken properties going. And, you know, most of America won't know this because you're in your various city. You know where the rental districts are that most people don't want to hang out are. Um, We're not talking about the 300 plus thousand houses. We're talking about rentals. So that's fine. Okay. That's not part of your world. So you don't care. But the banks care. Because there's loans given out to landlords too, and there's no one else getting out there. Combine mm-hmm. that with the fact that the banks aren't allowed to do foreclosures. So it's estimated the same amount of people who knew that they weren't going to get evicted um, that were already fighting their mortgages said the same thing. So now you have mortgage companies, you have banks that haven't been getting paid. And they have to go through a much more intensive court process to get their house back than a landlord getting a house back. So the bank's going to basically take, it takes basically two to three years to flush that out from the point that you stop paying at your house and you get kicked out until a new person owns that exact same property. It's about two and a half, three years. And that process basically will start now-ish whenever Congress, basically it's whenever Congress lets them. Um, but, realistically speaking it's going to have to come sometime soon if they haven't done this behind the scenes and allowed it already so you're going to have this first wave of low value houses banks aren't getting paid on those so they're going to tighten up their lending and so they're going to just start saying no more and at the end of the day look at the professions that people hate the most they hate the ones where people tell them no they hate dentists because you're not supposed to eat that they hate banks because you get told no and basically no other industry has to tells you no. Um, maybe going to get a car, but that's still a lender. That's still a bank telling you no because you couldn't get the loan for that car. So, you know, McDonald's doesn't tell you no because you want two Big Macs, you know? And so, so that's just part of life. And so it's easy to blame the banks for causing all this problem. But at the end of the day, it's people who chose not to pay. Um, and, and they were given the money to do so. And then they chose not to. And that's going to be the part of it. And 
the end reality is they're actually going to be the ones who get hit the hardest. So these tenants that have been evicted still supply and demand. Now we're just looking at the other side of the chain. There's nowhere to put yourself now that you've been right. because you broke where you were. Um, no one's. Do you feel the money was enough that was given? Um, for the most part, yes, because I, the, the, at least in my world, the tenants I was voluntarily quit working. That they they could have remained actively working, and because they made that selection, um, that's kind of on them. Uh, but it has to be enough, just based upon looking at what it's done to the labor market. Um, they they paid exactly. so much to not work. No one wants to work now. They have broken the labor market in a way that will take years to recover because the expectation for an entry-level position is now vastly too high, and you have essentially incentivized businesses to remove that position. And the question just became, how? So as you go around more and more grocery stores around the country, you see less and less cashiers. There's robots doing it. There's apps doing it. You can see that. And just because that's in one spot is easily seen does not mean that there's not every other industry trying to figure out how to do this. You know, at the end of the day, if you still want to get a Big Mac for five bucks, you can't be paying the guy who's making it 15. They're going to have to figure out a way to get more out of less people, if not remove them altogether and just have a robot back there cooking everything. And that is the problem that is going to be the legacy problem of this. Because every industry is going is already in the process of cutting out essentially entry level positions, and you need to learn how to work. Um, You know, and and now we're living in a world where you know those opportunities are going to go away, and it's going to really be the almost a before and after effect. Were you employable before it? Before this system kicks in, because it's not going away. you know that we that that's before we even talk about the fact that we killed the dollar. They they killed the ability for the labor market to take over. So long story short, yes, I, I believe they vastly overpaid them, and this is my proof of seeing that. Um, the way we look at the labor market now, where people just don't want to work. So when when they brought up that statistic that said this is the first time ever there's more there's twice as many jobs available yes. as those yeah, unemployed. Yeah. The part they don't say is it's not based upon total unemployed people. To be counted as the unemployed statistic, you have to be trying to get a position. If Mm -hmm. you are just saying, I'm out, I don't want to be back in, you don't count anymore. Uh, And there's a lot of reasons they do it. There are some sound economics behind the thinking behind there. But that does not mean there are twice as many jobs as people who are not receiving a paycheck. And that's an important caveat that needs to be recorded because the main reason people don't want to get a job now is they're happy with the check they're doing and being able to sit on their couch and not have to work because that, that's called, it's called a pure victory, but the cost is greater than the war. Mm-hmm. And the other side of it is the cost and the loss of labor. Mm-hmm. Then you talk about the, because we talk, we've got to, those people who did not pay are those individuals who did not contribute to society. When you have individuals that do not contribute to society, to the labor market, to the growth and, and industrialization of a, a society, what you end up having, I'm trying to get political, but you have a socialist society. And then with the cost of the dollar, the cost of labor, the loss of labor, the price of goods and shipping, I can't create more because I don't have tip, I don't have enough labor. I don't have logistics. I don't have the shipping, the people in order to create some place for you to live. So what do we do then? 
But we do what every other communist state has done. The first industry that breaks. <laughs> yeah, you get that cash them. back in Korea, but that kills a dollar. It so, kills a dollar, and then the first ones that get yelled at is transportation. Uh, at the end of the day, we have we have two taxes in this country. The first is is the actual tax that every person has to pay, and the second is the cost of transportation. Said another way, oil. You know, at the end of the day, Amazon's great. I can go on my computer, I can click anything I want, and it can get sent to me. It needs to get here. And that is the cost of oil for it to get here. Um, and, and that's the people they blame. I mean, just remember basically every recession in, in my life, who are the first people they always towed out in front of Congress? It's the oil executives, mean and evil oil executives. They're not the ones who destroyed the value of your dollar. This is a basically an import game. Your importing power is less because you killed your dollar. Well, that means your product you're buying costs more, period. There's none around it. It's not because mm-hmm. Putin started a war. It's because the last four presidents each printed more money than the one before them. Mm-hmm. And the, it, it's now become acceptable to both sides because the consequences haven't really come home yet. And they're not well, going we to fill them in, We won't fill them in our lifetime. But I told you to get it. Well, see, I, I have oil land. So I have land in a Permian Basin. I, I've been every, from everything from the refinery to the marketing. I'm all in oil. So I'm, I hate it at the pump as a consumer, but as a producer, I'm okay. Exactly. But, well, it's really not. See, as he just pointed it out. And this is why we, we do this in our, on Rich Friday's podcast. Because these are things as CEOs and executives we need to know and observe because this affects not only operations, but it affects the overall business. It affects the overall sector. It affects our society. And if, if we're not aware that if we put if we do what everybody else does and put the blame on people instead of addressing the issues that are there at hand that cause it, the roots of issues, you're going to have the, the cyclical cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's a downward spin. It's a downward spin. Where now the U.S. because we're not even the number one economy anymore, China has surpassed us tremendously. And if you really want to go there, Russia, Russia's ruble is much greater than the U.S. dollar. It's the strongest currency in the world, and you have to ask the question why. And as, oh, as this, oh, he about to go. See, I, I'm gonna pull it out of Joe. Come on, Joe. I'm gonna pull yeah, it out. I of mean, you. well, first off, I disagree. I think we are gonna see, and I think this this next recession is gonna wildly show it. Um, but, you know, as you said, when the dollar's not in charge, we haven't experienced that since prior to World War I. So basically yeah. no living American has ever lived when the dollar wasn't in charge. Um, so, but the, the reason, at the, the end of the day, the, the countries and the currencies that dramatically gained um, over the last COVID season are the ones that told their citizens, deal with it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Everyone, they got called cold and heartless and they don't care about people. But the ones that try to buy their citizens' happiness um, and buy their contentness for being told that they're um, irrelevant, essentially, um, those are the currencies that have gotten destroyed. Um, It's almost a direct correlation. And kind of makes me wish the euro didn't cover them all because you'd really see the spikes in them individually. But, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, you need to have you need to have adults in charge. And you need to protect your money. And the one country that is responsible for essentially all of the wealth of the world, historically speaking, despite all of the things they did wrong, were the ones that gave their people the most liberty. And of the three that took over the world, France, Spain, and England, England gave their people the most freedom. 
and the places they took over are vastly better than the French, which gave themselves some freedom, but not really a lot. But the ones that gave themselves least freedom, which is Spain, they're all the worst places in the world to be. I mean, do you really want to be in any former Spanish colony unless you're the drug lord? I mean, really, that that's what it is. And the way you overcome that, and it's true in mankind history, regardless where you look, is you have to give the individuals more freedom, which inherently takes power away from those that are sitting in office. And, you know, you look at California, they're never going to do that. They have basically made that clear. Um, so I know that if I'm ever starting a business, that's the first place I'm looking. What did you guys do during COVID? Did you guys keep it shut down? Or did you guys let your people figure it out themselves? Because those are the places in the long run that I can build a business. Because if I have to constantly be looking over my shoulder saying, um, is this governor going to shut down my business like he just did? Do I really want to expand there? Or do I want to go to Florida or to Texas or Kansas where nothing got shut down and I can build my business with consistency under my own freedom? Now, granted, if it fails, that's on me. That's cool. It's not me being forced to fail. And that is the, um, th- that's to your main point about the, the dictatorship and the, and the socialism side of it. Um, but to the, why is the ruble the most thing ever? Um, they, they being Europe stopped using anything but oil to make their own power. So they have control over the one thing you need because mm-hmm. Germany doesn't want to use Westinghouse nuclear operations anymore. It's a long story short. Um, that's why this war is being allowed. Um, all of this carnage because someone got sold. If I push the green ticket, I'll get elected. Um, and that is what allowed this war to happen, which really, if you want to back it up, it was initially propagated by the Russians in the first place. I was, <laughs> it was all the fracking distrust. Um, so I live in Pennsylvania. There is more natural gas and potential energy under this state than right. the rest of the world combined underneath just Pennsylvania. Um, but our governor said that is mean. Paraphrasing it, he's a childish approach, said that is mean. All the oil wells you've been digging, we're not going to let them be used anymore. He effectively shut down countless jobs and basically he literally shut down towns because the economy couldn't survive. So, you know, why? Because it got him elected. And a bunch of people in Philadelphia wanted to hear that he was greedy. And now that's what we have. How's that helping? Business-wise, how have you guys been able to in Pennsylvania? Uh, Well, I mean, where I'm at, we've basically been for the last two and a half years not getting paid. Um, We got got our assets are all less than they were. Um, So inherently, anything that's based upon a hard value asset um, evaluation system, which real estate is, is worse off which means all of the banking sector's ability to give loans is worse off, which is in part why interest rates are going up. That's also going up because they keep printing money and there's no other right. choice. Um, so the long run potential for getting out of this is incredibly weakened before it even starts. And oh, not to mention every single utility that every single individual business use is going to be more expensive because at least in our state, as well as most of the other shutdown states, you weren't allowed to turn off the electric or the, the gas. So those are publicly related utilities. So they can't do what the pumps are doing. They can't just go, well, the price should be X now. They need to eat it. 
And because they're only allowed to incrementally raise it every so often, each state is different in how they regulate that. But long story short, they can be in the hole for three times their, their annual budget. They're not allowed to raise the rate to catch back up. It actually will take them years before they even get back to breaking even, let alone to the point where it's profitable. So if you're here looking at saying every single company that's an electric company right now is in the hole and they're not allowed to catch up, why would I ever want to build an electrical power plant in Pennsylvania? Right. Why would I do it? Push so, so now your technology that is building your electricity is worse. Um, you're effectively not going to be profitable relative to the other new parts of this country that are producing electrons or world, depending on how you want to look at it at a global scale. Um, so your electricity cost is going to go up just from that factor alone. But also inevitably, these guys all have lobbyists. They're going to get their number raised and it will cross over the point of where it's covered their hole. But who's ever gone to Congress and said, lower my prices? They always go, no, we're selling this for more. We're selling this for more. And that's going to be the legacy of this is that every single utility will be overpriced and will net result for three decades before enough people are actually informed enough to make their, their government lower it, which would require the constant, you know, the, 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 the legislator of your various states to do it. So will that ever happen? No, because then once we get to that point, the argument's going to be, we don't have the ability to make a new power plant. We've, we've only caught up now, you know, so that the cost of production relative to what it will be then will be much greater. And if it yeah. wasn't a utility, it would have gone out of business. You know, if you're McDonald's and you can make your burger for three bucks, but Wendy's needs to spend 40 to make theirs. Well, it's basically the same thing. Am I spending 80 bucks for the same thing I buy for six? Well, no, it will go away. But in the utility world, that's impossible. So we will all be suffering. So that's when I disagree with you saying that the people who cause this will never feel it. Well, no, we're going to feel this now. and We're going to feel this for the remainder, for the long-term foreseeable future. Um, and, and that's just so that a couple of people could stay elected and other people that didn't, they didn't want to be elected are gone. I mean, really that's how I view the majority of this. Um, you know, whether or not the, the measures they did were right, it was proven that it was wrong. Well, of course I said it wrong, whether or not the cause that they used to shut everything down was justified. Uh, I still think it's his own debate, but the way that they did it is patently wrong and they knew that what I, they are either incompetent or they're liars because they, they, they should have known what they were doing was wrong and this is the only outcome and um they're, I, they're still doing it i think operationally i mean the same way we would have put, put it at the capacity the same way we have to look at our government system mm -hmm. and they're really i don't think they had something structured where they knew what to do all these entities are not connected when it comes down to software so it made it inherently hard to operate with the same uh well maybe the same goals were there but operationally people were left to do whatever they wanted to do and i don't know if we have any precedent any law that's actually in place to kind of govern some of the moves that were made it was, it was like, like the conclusion made out of desperation type. A lot of people think, no, you personally did that because you're in power. You, you have the you know, opportunity to do what you want. 
giving it a, a, a covered thing that, oh, Americans need more money in their pockets. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to shut this down. People are going to get sick. We don't want to do that. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to gauge. So the way I look at it is I think that they had a very specific goal. I think their very specific goal was they didn't want the orange guy in the White House anymore. And they had no idea what tool they were using to do it. Um, at the end of the day, they should have been using a very pre precise system. But they essentially were trying to clean a street with a hurricane. I mean, that's what they did. Um, and is the street cleaner for it? No. Is everything around it destroyed? Yeah. Will it be a problem to fix it? Yeah. Um, th that I mean, really, I mean, that's how I look at it. Um, because even by their all of their reports, I mean, it was all started to be the scariest and worst thing in the world. And there is, I'm not going to go down the whole COVID trail, but there's ample enough that Fauci knew he was lying and just kept lying from very early on in the process. Um, will he ever be held accountable for it? No, because the person who would hold him accountable for it gave him the microphone in the first place. Yeah. Um, so... It will never, it, it, it's almost insulated in that regards. So um, I, I, I think that as far as that was the big picture overview, but then when you're looking at the individuals in charge who are just trying to do something, it was, do I buy into this and keep my job or do I get kicked out and made a prior by trying to stand up and say it was no, because just like basically everything since really 2017 or so, if you come out and take a stance that's against what the public wants you to hear, the public has really strong at destroying you. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the whole cancel thing, the ability to, to essentially destroy your life, and they can do it to you as an individual, they can do it to you as a business. Um, you know, at the end of the day, all of us businesses need to have people who want to buy our stuff. And mm -hmm. some people will buy it based upon just the quality of the goods. Sometimes they'll base it on, it gives me good vibes if I buy this. Or, you know, it's just closer and easier. You know, there's lots of different reasons people buy stuff. But certainly one thing that all of us need to keep in consideration is um, do people either A, at worst, feel neutral about us um, or actually just want to use us? We definitely never want to be the side that's I want to burn that place down because I think they're evil. So from a, from just a media standpoint, do you really want to be that guy who's standing up against them? Um, you know, I, I think by this really long reference ago, but I think back to it was probably like 06 or something um, when the guys who did South Park wanted to do some joke about Muhammad and the people at Comedy Central were afraid their building was going to get blown up. So, like, how mm -hmm. do you make that judgment? On the one hand, you are hindering your own product. That's what they did. They hindered their own product out of fear. So at what point do you go, I should go with the mob who's just creating more fear? Or should I stand up for what's right? And, and that's really what, what the business owners need to figure out. Because if universally, everyone just said in the beginning, I don't care if you think I'm essential or not, I'm not shutting down. They wanted to shut us down because they knew they wouldn't have been able to. But enough people said, all right, we're going to give you guys the benefit of the doubt. We're going to go with your system. And then we were trapped. W once we gave them an inch, we lost the mile. And, and that's that's really it. Um, so I, I I wish it didn't happen that way, but that, that's where we're at. So when the next thing comes around, do we give them the inch or do, or do we go forward? Whether that 
but it starts with a not apologizing to something you didn't do wrong just so people don't yell at you i mean if you didn't do anything wrong don't apologize for it i don't care who you are or what it is um stand confirm in what you do it's another reason to go back to what i said get rid of people who are going to be fighting against you so that way you know what your company is putting out is what you actually would believe in um so to me that's incredibly important because people who think they're getting getting power by ripping everyone else apart that is like an addiction they're not gonna stop they feel joy they feel that they're important. now would they be ever able to create a company and maintain a payroll almost certainly not but they feel that they're able to rip down someone who does so that's just as hard and is a productive society no that's the accelerant on that downward spiral because before they were just making bad policy and we kind of just figured it out and we dealt with it. Um, I mean, there's very few things that come out of any legislator that are actually good for economies. But we were able to deal with it. But the, to deal with that and having to consciously be doing what the ever-shifting current of society says we should be at any given time, that's a, that's a, that's a game no one can win and everyone will get sucked down with that. And yeah, your cause might be the most important now. You might be destroying the other team and you don't like the other team, but it's better just to never get on that field and play the game. Joe, let me, uh, before we wrap up, I want to, I got to, I apologize. I think I misspoke when I said that the the individuals that started this would not feel it because I I do agree they will feel it. Mm -hmm. I want to know on the business side, especially because you're in real estate, uh, cash. I mean, because you think about it, you're not as liquid if you have your, 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 your dollar. Your cash tied up into your asset. So, mm-hmm. what are you all doing, and what should businesses be doing uh, in this? In, what's, what's forthcoming? So, for us specifically, what we did in pre- in preparation for this, because um, you know we, we saw it coming. I mean, it, it, it's it's highly projectable. No one's getting paid. They're going to have to dump their assets, uh, particularly in the rental world, which is where mine is. The, the the specific niche of the the areas that we play in. Are those neighborhoods that are like borderline? Is this going to end up being a place where people want to live in or is this going to end up being a landlord place? We don't do a whole lot of stuff in the places that are already going to be one way or the other. So what we basically did was we saw this coming and every single property we had that had significant equity in it, we went and got loans on it. And we're basically just sitting on a pile of cash wait until I can buy, you know, four properties for the price of two um, or whatever the ends ratios end up being. So one thing is true. They can make more money. They can print as much money as they want. They ain't making more land. So this land might not be as valuable today as it was because the rents are different. Um, But once everything stabilizes out, rents are going to skyrocket just because there's going to be very little supply and three years worth of evictions worth of people. So the rents will go up. So all these people who chose not to work um, and not to pay their rent, it, the bill's going to come due. It's just going to come due in 2024. Like, what's going to be? So at that point, the people who settled through and dealt with, with dealing with this and, and, and eating the bullet and, and overcoming the mental frustration of being told that I didn't matter, once that is overcome um the landlords will be vastly better off for it and then they will be called the evils people in the world because they're now charging twice as much in rent well that's what market economy is you know really at the end of the day the economy is amoral 
It's are you producing a good that people think is beneficial to their lives? If the answer is yes, people will buy it and you will survive. The answer is no. That doesn't mean you or your company is a bad person. It means you came up with a product idea that no one liked. Come back with classic Coke. You know, like try something different. Not everything's going to work. But that doesn't mean that the people who came out with new Coke were bad and they they should be burned at the stake. No, they thought it was going to work. It didn't. Okay. I mean, like we, you can see this in, in various different industries. I mean, I'm pretty sure 20 minutes ago, seltzers didn't exist. And now every fourth commercial I see is for a new flavored seltzer. Like <laughs> that, that's part of life. Does that mean seltzers? Yeah. Does that mean people who drink seltzers are new and good or whatever? Like, no, like um, businesses by their own right, I feel should not be playing the good vibes game. I, I, I think that the, that that's that combining yourself with whatever movement you think is going to get you likes is a bad spot and you should, should live or die by your product because 10 minutes from now you can easily just be as hated as you are loved. And, and if you look back over the, I mean, even before COVID um, all of the movements that came, people were absolutely beloved and they were the greatest people ever. And 20 minutes later they were hated. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's part of life. And, and if you want to play this internet Twitter game, you get popularity and all that. And it's, it's you know, that there's a way to do it well. But I find the best way to do it is just focus on your product, focus on the features that make you better than everyone else and why people should trust you. At the end of the day, I don't care who you voted for. I, I don't care who you gave your money to. Um, what matters is, is what I'm buying from you, is that going to make us better off or is it going to make me worse off? You know? I, I think that, that that's the direction that, that businesses go in. It will really take some of that gasoline off that downward spiral force and maybe allow a politician or two to make a good idea. So we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joe Rocky of Rocky Real Capital. Be sure to tune into all our other episodes every Wednesday on Rich Friday Podcast at 1 p.m. And also, don't forget to subscribe. Wherever you watch podcasts, you've got to subscribe. Listen, I'm Steven. I'm Nakachukra. And we'll see you next time. Peace. Bye for now.